First Corinthians 14, we will finish up this chapter, Lord willing, today and move on to uh, one of the one of my favorite chapters, if I can even say that, there's so many, but chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians uh, the, talks about the gospel and then, of course, the, uh, the significance of the resurrection, just some great things to find in that chapter will be in there for uh, several weeks, no doubt. But uh, as we are finishing up this, I, this look at the, these three chapters that deal specifically with gifts in the church and primarily what are the important gifts as opposed to gifts that maybe are passing away, gifts that are not as important. Tongues are kind of the one that he is speaking of because they have taken tongues and they have made their services look much like the pagan services. A lot of ecstatic speaking and emotion uh, but it, they weren't accomplishing anything. And, and he said that's a totally a misuse of, the, of tongues. And last week we dealt with the uh, use of tongues, what they're for. We saw that Christians are to be mature in the word and able to think through biblical passages. We don't grab a text and run with it. We interpret it in light of the entire word of God. Uh, it's so important that we don't use proof text, that we don't springboard. Uh, I grew up with all that. Uh, just taking a verse and preaching on it completely out of its context, and you can almost always assume that the uh, message is going to be faulty when you do something like that. So Paul reminds us of the main purpose of tongues, which was for the unbelieving Jews. We talked about that. He also made it clear that if there is no interpreter, they were to, it, the tongues serve no purpose. If something is if if there's religious hoopla, if there's ritual, whatever it might be, if nobody understands what's being done, because Christianity is first and foremost uh, speaks to our minds, our understanding, then nothing is being accomplished. And so those are some of the things that we have dealt with over the last few weeks. Um, also, uh, he clearly stated that if a visitor walks in and sees ecstatic displays but does not hear a clear exposition of the word, he's not going to be edified, right? And so in verse 26, which we finished with last week and we begin with today, we see that all we all come to church to do what we can to build up the body, which will always speak uh, uh, to the mind first. That's our primary purpose. Whatever a gift I have, it is to help build up people. In the Lord. So, so having looked at our review, this final section of the chapter turns from tongues as the focus to prophecy and general topics of order, orderliness, which is kind of what we would expect. In other words, one of Paul's main things that he's been beaten uh, over and over again is that there is to be edification and not to be uh, someone speaking and nobody knows what's going on. So, uh, clearly, we would expect him to say, as he does really twice in this uh, passage, that God is not the God of confusion, but of peace, right? A tongues without interpreter is confusion. Uh, then he finishes, uh, all things are to be done decently and in order, which has, a, again, just that alone, if, 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 if that was accomplished and practiced by uh, many churches today, you would not have some of the displays that we have today, right? And so verses 27 and 28 actually finish the subject of tongues, and I think sums up things pretty well. Um, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let that be, 
let there be only two or three at the most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret it. So it's not to be everybody just doing it. It is to be done uh, two or three at the most, because again, this isn't replacing preaching. Tongues was something usually a praise of the Lord, some kind of a glorifying God. There's a time for that. We kind of do that in singing today. But two or three at the most, make sure everybody, uh, is it, is there's an interpreter there. Whoever the interpreter was was probably known. If they had that gift, if he's not there, uh, then let them keep silent. That, that's as far as it goes. Verse 28. But if there is no interpreter, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Now again, think about it. This is not, as some I think try to do, that latter part of verse 28, as if Paul is developing a private prayer language. That's not his point. That's not what he's saying. He's, he's saying, if because there seems to be, a, we'll talk a little bit about this in a moment, maybe a residual uh, effect of the Holy Spirit at that time, these sign gifts that, I, that we've seen, we no longer are needed and probably no longer are given. Uh, there was a residual effect of the Holy Spirit being poured out with these gifts. And so it's very possible, evidently, that somebody had the gift, and yet there was no one there to interpret it. So Paul says, uh, keep quiet. So you have the ability to have the Holy Spirit come upon you with a, we'll see the same thing with a revelation, a word of knowledge, a tongue. And it doesn't mean you have to say anything. And so what he's saying is just let it happen. If you're speaking it, speak it quietly. Let the Holy Spirit do his thing. But keep quiet. So again, it's not, not that that's something we're going to look for, but it was happening at that day perhaps. But his point is, without an interpreter, don't say anything. And that's what you need to focus on, not trying to develop a whole doctrine uh, that we've spoken to already, but out of, that's uh, out of that verse. Tongues were gifts by the Spirit to serve the church, and so they were under the same regulation as the preaching and teaching and any exhortation, which goes back down to verse 31, um, where he says, For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. So you see, it's the same principle, no matter what... um, which gift you're talking about, there's to be order, there's to be edification, there's to be teaching, there's a purpose in what we do. Uh, It seems pretty clear that the Spirit doesn't work in people. Then, again, if we kind of think about this in today's uh, phenomena, can we say that there are people who are slain in the Spirit, who are out of control in some way, as we see so often, because what is that accomplishing? Paul, every gift here, Paul says, you can restrain, you can refrain from exercising it. Well, it makes sense. I, if it's to say, for argument's sake, that I have the gift of preaching and teaching, I don't have to exercise that. I can go to another church and say, well, I've got the gift of preaching, so I've got to have my turn. No. I can refrain. It doesn't mean that I don't have that gift. And so the idea that, that if, if the Spirit comes upon you like this, you're out of control, you, you've got to say it, and we're going to see here in a moment, if people can't just say, you know, the Spirit just implanted a thought in my mind, and so now I've got to share it. No, you don't. Keep it to yourself, just like the tongues. 
learn. Maybe later on you can say something. But uh, no, you don't have to exercise it because as we're going to see in a moment, none of these gifts were considered inspired. Or and by that I mean infallible. And, and that's something that I think is very interesting. <clears throat> There's no place in the Bible where people were speaking at the same time unless they were singing. And even then they were singing the same song. Uh, they were reading from the Bible. They were reading the same words. If someone is speaking in the church, all the attention should be on that person. Never more than one speaking at, at one time. And Paul makes that very clear here. And it just makes sense, right? Because we're not going back to what this this idea that they were thinking that just having a display of the spirit with tongues was all that mattered. No, well, we don't we don't need a physical display of the Holy Spirit. What we need is for the Holy Spirit to work in us through the preaching of God's word. That's the display we want to see, right? <clears throat> and so this principle then. This idea that we don't want confusion, we want attention on what is being done, is one reason why we are careful with the noise in the church. Now, let me say from the beginning that our parents do a great job with our children uh, in keeping them quiet. Uh, you know, so I'm not. This is I'm not speaking to any person. It's just general principles that we cover now and then. There's a reason why we have a nursery, right? There's a reason why you know the child just is. You know, uh, making too much noise, a parent has to take them out, right? Because you're distracting from the uh, preaching. And I've uh, heard people and they've been in churches where people think, you know, we we want all the children here making as much noise. That's all kind because we just love children and it's, and it's great to have children in the service. Well, I'm all for that. I'm glad we have little kids running around, right? But there's a time and place for anything. And uh, so, yeah, there's going to be noise now and then, but we understand there, 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 we, we want to maintain some level of, of quietness for the preaching of God's word. And a, a, a kid who's allowed to just scream and carry on and be himself, you know, that, uh, it, it's, it's distracting. And, and someone can say, well, preach through it. Don't let it bother you. Well, I'm a lot better at preaching through distractions than I used to be, believe me. But my point is not how much it's distracting me. But how much is distracting you? And I've seen cute little one and a half year olds. They've learned to walk or to get stand, and they get up and they get behind. They turn around, get behind the pew, and they look at the people behind them, and they're making gooey eyes. And everybody behind them—that's all they're looking at. And you can't you can't blame them, you know. But you know you got to be aware of that kind of stuff. He said, "Well, why are you bringing all that up for now? Well, because it's the point." Anything that distracts is, 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 is you're, you're defeating the purpose of being there. <clears throat> so I just, I just throw that out there again. Um, we're going to have noise in the sermon. That's all well and good, but that, I hope you understand what I, why I said that. And so there must be an interpreter, he says, or keep quiet. Even if you supposedly have the gift, it doesn't have to be exercised. And to me, this is another proof that there was not... Uh, these gifts were not done robotically, but they were they had full senses, they had full control over it. Again, they weren't in some ecstatic state where the Holy Spirit had come upon them and you kinda don't you've lost control, you're doing you're just kind of going through the motions because that's not worship of God. God doesn't need robots. God doesn't need people who don't know what's going on. 
He wants people who are thankful from their hearts, who love the Lord from their hearts, and doing everything for His glory. Not just religious hoopla. <clears throat> and so you, you, someone might say, well, why would the Holy Spirit give the gift without an interpreter? And, and that's not necessarily easy to answer. It, 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 I'm, I, I can't be 100% sure whether that was even happening or not. But for sure, Paul is saying, he isn't saying that such a one can speak in tongues to himself and it's okay. That's not his point. He's just he's talking about in the church service. <clears throat> His point is not to speak, to be quiet uh, when somebody else is speaking. He has already made the point that speaking internally without understanding is fruitless. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> this also presupposes that interpreters were known for their gifts, and if they're not present, then uh, no one needs to speak in tongues. So in other words, it is not okay to stand up and speak first without thinking through the issues. Uh, no one, it doesn't appear from this that no anybody could just stand up at any time and say something. And and when they when the floor was given to them, as it were, we're going to see in a moment, they were to judge everything that is said by what was inspired and what is infallible, so that and again, think about it. That means that even though you had the gift of, of, of a word of knowledge, of a gift of wisdom, it did not mean that was to be assumed, even though and that was clearly the Spirit doing it, it was not assumed that it was infallible. And again, that's thinking, because that's not how we see it exercised today, oftentimes. But, but we've made that case before, you know, just because if I have the gift of preaching and I'm preaching, Everybody knows that doesn't mean that what, everything I'm saying is absolutely 100% true, right? You're, it's your responsibility to judge it by the word of God yourself. And that's a, uh, for all of us to do that, no matter what we hear. And so these are interesting points that when we impose them upon the modern-day charismatic movement, we find that there's many problems there. <clears throat> so you see the self-control in all this. And I think that's a, as you read through that, that's one of the things that you certainly see. It would be possible to sense the gift being given to you and yet remain quiet. And it wasn't considered wrong. You weren't pushing the Holy Spirit. And so this helps us make judgments on what's going on often today. So verse 28 doesn't have to be a green light for private prayer language. It is, if this gift is going to pass away, that he's merely perhaps explaining what's, what to do in the meantime until it is fully gone. Now verse 29 says, let two or three prophets speak. So he's kind of turned the attention to another gift. Uh, the question might be, by prophet does he mean where somebody is given a unique word and uh, they are to speak to the church? Or does it just mean a regular prophet of the, the preacher who's prepared a sermon? I, the, uh, I think his point will be the same, but it's interesting there. It, it's possible that some people will come to church, some men will come to church, and they would say, you know what? I believe the Lord has given me something to say. And, and uh, the church would understand that. But that, does that mean that he has a right when the preacher's come, preaching, for instance, or somebody else is speaking to say, you know what, I, 
I, I, I have a thought that's come to me. I want to express it. And, and Paul says, no. And that's happened to me. That happens to me all the time when I'm hearing other preachers. And I, and, uh, uh, in their preachers, I'm thinking it through. A thought's come to me. And I think, you know what? I think, I think this needs to be said now. Well, maybe so, but that doesn't mean I get to get up and, and disrupt the whole service to, because I feel like maybe something needs to be added to his message. No. So, it's possible the Holy Spirit gives us, gives us all insights. And there's appropriate times to exercise those insights. I give that at the end of the message. Perhaps the Holy Spirit has uh, given you a thought uh, as you've been listening that, that, that is good, is profitable for the rest of us. And so you have an opportunity under certain guidelines to express those thoughts. That's fine. Um, and so, uh, the, the, whether it's a, a, the preaching or just a gift of prophecy, I don't think it really matters because notice what Paul is saying. He says, um, way, uh, it, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So, so no matter what gift we're talking about here, it's not to be considered infallible. And, and how that guards the church because you got people always who have said, the Lord has spoke to me. And nobody has any way of verifying that. Except, does it match with the word of God, right? And then he goes on in verse 30. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, so that would seem to assume to be something that has come upon them. I think a thought. Let the first be silent. Now this, when you read that, you're thinking, well, that seems to say that, um, you know, the pastor, they're preaching, but you've got a thought. And uh, so now he's got to be quiet so you can express your thought. And then, of course, someone has a thought while you're speaking. you got to be quiet and you you got to speak. And, of course, we know that kind of goes against the whole text. And I don't think that's what's being said. Um, there are some who would argue that. But I think that uh, what others say, and I think that would make the most sense as we read the following verses, is that in, in the context, it, that what it, it says and how it can be translated in the Greek is, let the first one finish and be silent. Once he's silent, then somebody else can say something. Which, again, it goes back to what we do here. Once I'm done, and then if you've got something to say, then we're all ears. But uh, you don't interrupt. So even though in the way it's translated, you know, and all the translations translate it that way, the, the idea is, is that once he is quiet, and so they were to use the Bible to weigh what is being said, even when the Holy Spirit is gifting the words, or the thoughts at least. And so gifts don't mean perfectly used, perfectly exercised. Uh, if this was the words of a word of knowledge, even even that has to be compared to the Bible. One could not assume divine authority, or at least divine uh, inspiration uh, in a, in a uh, perfect way. Uh, it had to be uh, compared to the Bible, because the Word is the ultimate authority. And so any any practice, any doctrine that undermines the Word of God is dangerous. And that's why I've said all along, uh, the idea that, that the Holy Spirit... Is given us new revelation today. 
I believe is completely contrary to God's word because uh, it undermines the word of God. We don't need it. We've got everything we need. And uh, once you start doing that, uh, then uh, all you do is have confusion. And, and as we know, God is not the author of confusion. So, the, for instance, the Catholic Church assumes that for itself that it can speak on God's authority. Uh, I've heard many of them say, that a, a Catholic apologist say that the Protestant, the non-Catholic, does not have the right to interpret the word. Only the church has the right to interpret the word. Well, that's uh, fine and dandy, but I don't think you're going to have a hard time uh, coming up with scripture. Uh, and especially once you look at uh, centuries of misapplying the word of God and misinterpreting the word of God, at some point you have to say, well, someone's got it wrong, right? And so uh, we got to be very careful. The word was given, the canon was closed, and that's it. And so, as I said, verse 30, then, um, I think it's pretty obvious that the idea there is that two people are not to speak to, to, uh, at once. And so, if you read 30 and thir- 31 and 32, for you can all prophesy one by one, right? That's the point. So that all may learn and all be encouraged. Because if you prophesy all together at one time, it's a, nobody, even if it's not in tongues, right? If we had two or three guys up here preaching at the same time, it's, it's silly. It's not even worth, uh, it wouldn't even be the debate, right? Then verse 32. And the spirit of prophets are subject to the prophets. So I, th- I think the idea there is that when you say something, uh, you're not a robot. You're saying it. We're thinking you can either be quiet or you can, or you can speak. You're in control in that sense. And then, of course, he finishes, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So, this does not prove in my mind that such revelations still exist, much less that they're okay to interrupt the preaching during a sermon, because that's the whole point. Again, let's think about the point he's making. Even when there is direct revelation or or insights, whatever this gift, these gifts would be, it would be a better understanding, uh, th- these insights w- would, uh, th- th- for them to work, to, to, uh, to, to edify the best, must be done in order, must be done without confusion, not at the same time. Um, this is not about wh- whether the revelations are still ongoing. Again, like we've said, if if God still gives somebody tongues from time to time or, or revelation, you know, I'm not going to get into the uh, grass trying to argue that. I'm just going to say that as long as it's done biblically, we're not going to have any problems. Because I know that I'm not going to have to deal with someone trying to disrupt the service. Uh, it's going to be done in a proper way. And then at the end of the day, you say what you want to say. If it doesn't uh, support the word of God, we don't, we're just going to reject it anyway. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Let's just do things in a biblical way and, and all the problems are taken care of. In verse 32, I think this again supports my case because what Paul is saying is that no matter what gifts are being exercised, each one involved is in, full, is in full control of himself. And so uh, there's no excuse to interrupt. And then the uh, first part of verse 33 
which goes with this section, and I believe the, the latter part of verse 33 goes with the next section. He, he says, why? For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And so that context explains and helps us understand everything that's gone on before. That's the purpose. That's the point. And so any interpretation that leads to confusion obviously is a misinterpretation. I would say at the very least, like the idea that everybody can be speaking in tongues at the same time or or I've been in services where everybody prays at the same time. That's different. Um, I, I, I have mixed emotions about that or mixed feelings about that because um, that can be confusing. It can be distraction. You got, you're trying to pray and the next person, person next to you is praying out loud and I'm not sure, but, but I think the principle applies, you know, if it's confusing, why? Why do it? What's the point? <clears throat> and so the, the concept, the concept is simple. There, uh, where there is confusion, we can say that is not of God. Now all you have to do is turn on YouTube and you can see all kinds of examples of confusion in the church. And you can see videos of church services where there's nothing to be confusion. Ecstatic, emotionalism is not what the church is to be about. And the same goes uh, with their strife. When there's strife, we know that somebody is thinking about himself and, and love is not being uh, dealt with properly and and uh, something's not being done right. And, and that, it's, it's, one of the, it's, it's like a litmus test for whether the church service is what it should be. And notice that he could have said that God was not the author of ignorance, and not, but knowledge, because in a sense, the whole point of the service is to edify, right? But he also, but here it says confusion and peace, since uh, that's kind of the subject of why the gifts came to start with, right? Um, it isn't enough to say that we are teaching through disorder and confusion. No, we're we're we're, we're it's to be a I, I, we're, we're to promote peace and uh, not and non-confusion, because uh, God is not the God. You know, again, the universe tells us about that. We see the preciseness of the universe, the preciseness of science. Clearly, whoever's designed this thing uh, is, is a God of, not of confusion, but of orderliness. And, and, and nature itself teaches us that. So, why would we want to have services in which we're worshiping Him? Where the mind is kind of thrown out and, and emotion reigns. It, it doesn't reflect our creator. <clears throat> now, when people, you know, see us, they should see people controlled by the spirit with sound minds, not controlled by our emotions, right? That, that's, that's to be who Christians are. It doesn't mean that we can't be emotional. I'm not. I'm not trying to uh, negate emotion. We know that some people in some cultures are more emotional than others, and that's all well and good. Uh, you know, I come from a more Western European background. You know, you think about the English who kind of have the stiff upper lip and kind of known for not being emotional. Now, I think if you go to a soccer game, you see that they can be quite emotional, but. You know, I, I might not be a real emotional person. I think that's probably safe to say. But I, not to say I don't have emotions. But there are others who are very emotional. And that's all. This, God made us. He wired us the way he wired us. But that doesn't change anything if I'm 
real emotional. I've got to, I've got to work on that when it comes to, and to, to emoting and, and not be ruled by my emotion. You know, I might have, my, I probably need to work on being more emotional. And to, uh, not be afraid to be emotional. Because probably if anything about our church, we're not people who are real emotional in public. And that's not always good. Sometimes we need to be a little bit more emotional. But anyway, I don't want to get too far off the thing here. But but the, but emotion to the point where it's just confusion and the mind is kind of uh, taking a back seat is not where we want to be, right? There's to be peace. There's to be a seriousness. And that requires mental activity. And emotionalism doesn't require truth. And it uh, kind of makes us to be the center of things. And this, and so we got to be very careful there. Because I love emotional music. But nothing should stir our emotions like the truth of whatever is being sung or said about. Right? That should be what, you know, and, and, and emotional music certainly can accentuate that. And that's a good thing. We don't need to be afraid of that. But when it takes the place of the truth being presented, then uh, it's gone too far. And this is certainly important. Again, we say, why do you stress this? Because our young people are being raised in a culture that emotes, purposely emotes, and and calls thinking logically. In some cases, we, we that's racist. No. Well, first of all, white people did not uh, come up with logic, but but emoting. Is just, I hear something and I just blurt it out. I just, I just, without thinking, without hearing what you've got to say, without considering it, without, without using my mind, I just say whatever I want to say. I emote and it doesn't, it's, all it does is produce a conflict. And I'll tell you, I think a, one reason why it's easy for this to catch on is because less and less people go to church and less and less people sit for uh, a while and quietly think about things that are being presented to them and to mull it over into their mind and meditate it through the week, you're, you're taught to just listen to music 24 hours a day, to watch sports 24 hours a day, to do whatever. You see? And what happens? See, there's a reason why the God has established the church because that kind of stuff leads to emotionalism and a, and a cessation of being able to use our minds. So, it's all connected. Nothing happens in a vacuum. And, and that's just kind of touching on the subject. All right, let's move on here. I think that should be self-explanatory. If it's not, of course, we can always talk about it later. But the latter part of this, uh, verse, starting in the middle of verse 33, we go to another subject that, uh, of course, there's no controversy about any of this. Where it says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but it should be, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, either you believe that Paul is inspired, and this is the word of God, and then it's not really that difficult to understand. And we'll explain a little bit of this as we go along. Or you don't believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. It might contain it. But a lot of it is man's opinion, uh, this being one of them. And so we can jettison that, right? And you've got both kinds out there today. Well, 
you know where we stand on all this. And I think here what Paul is saying, just like we saw in 1 Corinthians 11, when he says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practices, nor do the churches of God. I think what Paul is saying here is that the, some of the problems that the Corinthian church had, one obviously is that the women seem to be in positions of leadership, the tongues and all, some of the other things, is not was not the norm in the churches. There, there were a lot of good churches, and the Corinthians uh, felt, you know, they were kind of going off in their own direction, and Paul's bringing them back in there and saying, you guys I need to uh, remember uh, what what you should be doing, what your purpose is. And we'll see this at the very end. And so that's what he's saying here. So evidently one of the problems was their uh, understanding of the woman, women in the church. And so to benefit from this, and not to go off into extremes, uh, as some have, because the Bible twice says women are not to speak in the church, there are those who being, okay, women cannot speak in the church. They can't sing in the church. They can't do specials. You know, they can't be, you know, and that's an extreme. That, that, that misses the point of what's being said here. So in order not to do that, we want to remember the context, which is order in the church. And he's not making a statement that when we come together as a church, women can only sit there and not make a sound. But he is making a clear statement about leadership, and especially here, teaching the word of God. Because that's the point here about about how the preaching, how the teaching, how the lessons of the things being spoken are to be done. And so, um, let's turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2, because here Paul deals with the same subject, and I think between the two we kind of get a good idea of what is being said and what is not being said. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Now let's just read verse 8 because that, that, that again is a little bit like what we're, our context in 1 Corinthians. 1 Timothy 2.8 I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So you already see that there should be peace, there should be uh, love, there should be orderliness. But then he says likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold and pearls and casting attire. So there is a look that Christian women are to go for, and, and there's an application here with men, but women are the, have always been, they're the, they're the beautiful sex. And so there's a look that you are to be going for, and it's not being hot. I don't know that, do I need to say any more than that? But, Here's what you are to adorn, what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Then he goes on, to kind of more to the point of what we're looking at. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So there you begin to see that how this is, what his point is. It's not that she can't talk. She is not to question authority. She is not to be in positions of leadership. She is to, in, in those two areas of, of, of teaching and of authority, she's to be quiet. She, she's, she's to have no part of that. Then his reason for this, 
For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. We want to notice two things in that passage. Uh, Over in uh, our text in 1 Corinthians 11, he, he says that women should be quiet and submissive as the law says. And so what word in the law does it say that? Well, first of all, law in the New Testament can use, mean either the all of the Old Testament or generally the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, right? And so when they refer to the law, they don't necessarily mean the, the code, the written code, but what contained in those books. And of course, in Genesis 2, the woman was taken from man and was created for man. So there's a, the, the, the whole concept of submission and orderliness in the family and in the marriage and in society was established right there. And I think that's what Paul was referring to, the law. And then, of course, in First Timothy, that's right where he goes, right? Because not just in the order of creation, but also when, when Adam sinned, Adam's sin was a greater transgression for two reasons. First of all, he sinned deliberately. He, he had a choice between God and Eve, and he chose Eve. And that then secondly plunged us into the whole world into sin. That was original sin, and we're sinners because of Adam's sin. But here he, he says, but, but Eve wasn't without sin. She sinned, but she was sinned in the, she sinned in the sense that she was deceived. And so instead of looking to Adam for protection and help, she went outside of her uh, place as his wife and made a decision, and in her decision was deceived. And so now, he says, now in the order of things, that she is to not be a teacher. Doesn't mean that she maybe wouldn't make a good teacher. That's not the point. Women are to teach other women. Women are to teach our children. Uh, Women can teach. But when it comes to authority and to the public for a proclamation of the gospel, no. And that's one of the reasons. So Paul goes back to the law or the Old Testament to make that point. So those are two good things to remember in all this. Oh, the, the first thing, that was actually, that was one of two things. The other, the first thing I wanted to say was that that lets us know right there, Jesus says the same thing, that Paul saw first and uh, the first two chapters of Genesis as historical, not poetic, not 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 something that that can be explained away. That it really happened, and he uh, by his uh, argument there makes that very plain. And so, some read this and ignore the context and see that it's their mission to uh, be their wife's family or their wife's uh, and family's pastor. That women are to ask their husbands at home. That means that only I can teach my wife. My wife can't learn from anybody else, and that's nonsense. That's uh, that's That says a lot about you as a, as a husband. Uh, but no, Paul's not saying that. Um, there's, a, there's a point to what's uh, going on here. She isn't to then openly question authority. If she's got a question about something, it's not like, at the end of the service, if you have any questions, men or women, you're free to ask about the message for clarification. What this is saying is that at the business meeting, for instance, a decision is made, 
and the woman doesn't like it, and she stands up and she says, and she gives her opinion. That's where Paul draws the line because she doesn't have that authority. That go home, let your husband. You can talk to him about it. If he thinks you have a point, he can go and he can talk to the leadership and to the rest of the church on your behalf. And so uh, we got to be careful that we don't just run with this and, and go in directions that Paul is never uh, meant for it to go. So it speaks to authority. If she has questions about things, whether it be policy or doctrine, she can speak to her husband through her husband, but she is not to stand up in public and question those things. And he finishes by saying that she should be ashamed to do so, and the church should be ashamed by allowing it. So, there's just there's no way to interpret this other than what it actually says, unless you're going to go the route of liberals and say that, well, Paul, he hates women, and this isn't really from God, and so forth. And if you, and if you Going to go that route, you might as well find another church because uh, there's plenty out there who would go that route. And, uh, you know, I would strongly advise you not to do it because they're going to answer to the Lord for all that. And, again, the point is because all that is contrary to the order that God has established. It causes confusion and problems in the church that shouldn't have to be there. So as we, and so again, so there's consequences to both Adam's sin with uh, plunging the world into total depravity, but there's consequences to Eve's sin. And that is that women now have a place in the church, a place in the home. Uh, there's, 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 there's a submission there that has taken place. Uh, that was even there before the, the, her sin anyway, in, in the very creation. Now you say, well, I don't have a husband to ask. Well, then there's other men you can go to, a deacon, the elders, whoever. That's that's not the point. If you don't have a husband who's interested enough to help you in that area, I feel sorry for you, but there's other men you can go to, other avenues. And if and husbands, I would say that if you're not in church or concerned enough, if you're, if you're not in church enough, if you're not concerned enough to know what's going on so you can't answer your wife's questions, then that's on you. And you've got your own problems. So uh, there's, there's no reason for any of this to, uh, to make excuses for any of this. I think the verses are pretty clear. Church order is to look a certain way. And so therefore we can conclude from Paul's words that churches who have women elders are not to be considered true churches. What does he go on to say here? Um... In verse 37, if anyone thinks that he is a, a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not to be recognized. So okay, you, you're gonna, you're gonna reject the plain, uh, teaching of God's word and, uh, you're, you're, you can't, we can't recognize you. We can't be part of that. There's gonna have to be separation on, on certain issues. And this would be one of them. So as we said before, this is asking a question, and then there is question. So there's a difference between asking a question and questioning things in policy. See, they're very different. You know, and when your child comes up to you asking a question, well, we answer that question, right? When your child questions what you're doing, well, that's a different story. Then sometimes we have to say, well, you're doing this because I have told you that you were doing this, right? 
It's not your job to question what I'm doing, what I'm saying, my policy, and so forth, right? There's a difference, and I think the point here that Paul is making in these verses. So then let's quickly hurry through this. Uh, verse 36, we've got some biting criticism here. We see the attitude that Paul has of those who refuse to obey the word of God. They're kind of rhetorical questions because the answer is pretty obvious. Um, he says, first of all, in verse 36, or was it from you, talking to the Corinthian church, that the word of God come? In other words, the Corinthian church has got these policies that they come up with on their own. And Paul says, uh, who do you think you are? Uh, you didn't start yourself. You started. You were started through me, through the apostles' work, through the word of God. Uh, what are you doing? And, and he makes this very plain that uh, you guys uh, are in danger of uh, having that lampstand taken away, as we saw in the book of Revelation. And, of course, eventually it did happen. So we all have the same word, the same spirit, the same new natures, and we all need to have services that pretty much look the same way as far as what the point of it is. And then 37 is, is rather biting, because he says there, if you think you're spiritual and that you should lead and teach, then um, you need to be acknowledging the things that I'm writing. In other words, if, if you're not going to stand by the word of God, you have no business teaching, no, no business being an authority, no business considering yourself to be spiritual when you're rejecting the word of God. Instead of making showy gifts the hallmark of spirituality, he says, let's see some humility and some love and some service and some obedience to Christ. And that might be perhaps verse 37, the most important verse for us today. If you don't want to, if you want to be seen as a spiritual person, then let's say somebody who's submissive to the Word of God. And then 38. Those who don't obey the Word are not to be recognized as God's children or recognized in the church, church's discussion. You know, if we're at a playground, it's not too long before you know the parent and the, their children, because when a parent speaks and and all the kids are ignoring them, but there's one who all of a sudden perks up, oh, that's that parent's child right there, right? So how do you know God's people? Because when the Lord speaks, we perk up and we start to do what we're being told to do as, as a, a good child should. And that's kind of what Paul is saying here, that if you're not obeying the word of God that I, I've given you, then something is terribly wrong. And then lastly, in verses 39 and 40, the last phrase must be taken with everything else that he said in these chapters. If anyone runs up quoting this verse as an excuse to speak in tongues, then it would undermine everything that's just being said. When Paul says, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, he's not saying that tongues are uh, something that must be done. He's saying, look, at do those things as long as they're edifying. They're good to do. He's, he's not against them. He's just, they must be done the right way. And then he finishes, of course, by repeating it, really. All things must be done decently and in order. Decently has the idea of harmonious, harmonious and beautiful. God is a God of beauty as well as order, right? And harmony, of propriety, of order, of things. And, and uh, his children should reflect that orderliness, that there's a there's a, uh, a way that things are to be done. There's there's a certain level of authority and submission that all things, every aspect of society must have. 
You must know your place when it comes to workers, uh, bosses, wives, husbands, children, parents, you know, whatever it is, government, uh, civil, uh, the, the, the populace, whatever. There's authority so there can be order and flourishing. And so any any disruption of that order that, that does not cause flourishing but causes sin and disruption and violence and immorality, as we talked about with that man earlier, any any confusion that causes that we know is not of God. We want no part of it. But for now, we can spend another hour just applying this to the orderliness of our home, of our work ethic, of our personal life, cleaning house, mowing yards. There, there's a there's something to be said about all that. I think for a Christian, we won't get into all that. But let, for now, let's just make sure we apply it to the church and uh, see if God won't bless us for it. All right. Well, we've gone a little long today. So, any questions or comments? So, yes, 